0: Hi, I'm Deb. This is Frankie V. I'm Grant. Hi, this is Phil. I'm Aaron. I'm Steven. Hi, I'm Joe. Hi, I'm Matt. We're Tim and Terry. I'm Susan. Hi, this is Phil.
1: Seminary Dropout is supported by listeners like you and me.
0: Seminary Dropout is supported by listeners. Easy.
1: Just visit supportseminarydropout.com.
0: Just go to supportseminarydropout.com. And I'm your host, Shane Blackshare. Interviews with leading Christian authors, leaders, and thinkers. Let's go. My guest today is Bonnie Christian. Bonnie, welcome back to Seminary Dropout.
1: Thank you so, so much for having me back.
0: Let's start here. Why don't you just, why don't you tell everyone uh, who you are, what you do?
1: So I'm a, a journalist and author. Um, for a long time, I was mainly based at The Week, um, but I, I left there earlier this summer and I'm back to, to France. so now you'll stop and find me. I um, have a column at Christianity Today, um, I also am a fellow at a place called Defense Priorities, which is a foreign policy think tank. Um, and I write for uh, Reason Magazine pretty regularly. Um, and uh, uh, I recently got a, a couple pieces in the New York Times, which was very exciting. Um, and then uh, I have a book coming out this fall, which is sort of the impetus for this, um, which is called Untrustworthy uh, The Knowledge Crisis Breaking Our Brains, Polluting Our Politics, and Corrupting Christian Community. Um, and that is my second book. Um, and uh, I'm very excited to have it finally get out there in the world.
0: So I think just by that title, a lot of people will realize what's what this is about and immediately kind of connect to it. What made you decide to write this book other than being a journalist for the last six years?
1: <laughs> Everything. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a really sort of like obviously pressing problem. Um, and so that that was a big part of it, and, and some of it was even just, like, the, the response that I got when I started delving into these sorts of, um, topics in, in some of my articles, um, like, I think one of the, the pieces that I wrote that got the most feedback ever, and I ended up, like, talking about it on CBS, was about, um, at the boomer generation especially, you know, like that when we were kids, they told us like, stay off the internet, like don't watch too much television, you're gonna like ruin your brain, you're gonna like, you know, get sucked into like crazy lies on the internet. Um, but now, you know, it's it's sort of become a, a stereotypical figure in American politics, like the boomer, who sits all day watching cable news while like posting memes on Facebook. And so it's sort of a strange um, experience as an adult child, um, of, of this generation to, like, I know a lot of people who are my peers who are looking at their parents and I'm like, what is going on? Like, why are you in this, like, crazy informational space after all the warnings you gave to me? Um, and so articles, like, and it's not at all just the boomers, it's, it's far from it, um, but articles like that one that, that looked at different angles of sort of this knowledge crisis and the way our media environment has gotten... Um, So unsettling and so confusing Um, got a lot of responses that indicated to me that there was you know a real appetite for for someone to delve into this not from just like a a Progressive or conservative space where it's like the problem is the other side, um, but to hopefully look at it from a more um, Balanced or or maybe balance isn't quite the right word, but um, a a more like politically um, omnivorous perspective to see that there there are problems, you know, from from different parts of our politics and and you know, we're all contributing to this situation.
0: You mentioned the the kind of stereotype about the the boomer. Um is there do we have stats on on that to show I mean, we don't even know what metric you would use, but like that that boomers are more vulnerable to um Believing false narratives, or um, you know, kind of being indoctrinated by that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, the one stat that I know off the top of my head, and I believe I say this in the book, maybe not though, um, is that age, old age, is like the the demographic factor that is most correlated with sharing, acts unwittingly sharing false information online. So, like more than when whether someone is a Republican or a Democrat. Um, more than what news they consume age is or whether they're educated or not educated rich or poor age is the the single greatest factor that correlates with that Um, and you know there's there's also some things to do with just sort of like technological prowess Um, so for example there was another survey that found older users of um like facebook are more likely to think that say someone is like hand-selecting what they see, like they don't really understand what an algorithm is and, and how they're being fed this information. Um, but a- as much as there are those trends and there, there is some age correlation, like, you know, these levels are, are, a lot of young people are confused about that too. So um, it's by no means like if you're 25, you're, you're guaranteed to, to just be only reading and believing true stuff.
0: Yeah, so I could, that's so interesting because I feel like, um, you know, one of the things that, uh, that you point out in the book is that Facebook and, and I would assume Twitter, too, um, they, they had algorithms that found out what someone, what a specific user would likely find objectionable. And then the first it sounded to me like the first inclination was to just show them things that they would like. But they found out that when they did that, they actually used Facebook less. So then they switched and said, well, let's start showing them things that we know they won't like.
1: Yeah, it was Facebook specifically, and there, it was a, it was a New York Times report about it. and basically, yeah, they they found that if they stopped showing people like divisive, especially political stuff that made them angry and got them like emotional and worked up, people would log on less. And for them, apparently like the ultimate metric is use sessions. It's not just accounts because an account doesn't earn you any money if they're not logging in constantly. And so, um, yeah, they made a conscious choice of we're going to keep showing people stuff that gets them riled because it makes them come to our website more.
0: Yeah. So people who didn't grow up with this technology, I think it can be hard for them to understand that your timeline is not just first come first serve, like they're not seeing everything that every one of their friends is posting that that has actually been kind of curated for them to a degree.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say to a a large degree and it's been really interesting. um, So for a long time, sort of the the two things keeping me active on my personal account on Facebook was a family group and a church group that I was in. Um, And the family group kind of just isn't busy anymore and the we moved away from that church and so I'm, I'm very, very rarely on my personal Facebook anymore and it's been really interesting to see since I'm not on there interacting, um, when I do log in, usually like on the way to manage my professional page, like the things it throws up in my newsfeed because it doesn't know what I want at this point because I haven't interacted. So it's just like throwing things at the wall, like maybe you'll like this, maybe you'll like this and they're just like, things I would never engage with, because at this point, it doesn't have the data to feed me precisely what would keep me there.
0: You know, I was so to just to be real transparent. Um, I, I've been really lucky enough to have parents that didn't fall in this trap. Um, but I did have specifically a grandmother who did uh, before she passed about a year and a half ago. And You know, part in our conversations, the thing that I was realizing was it was kind of like, and I don't know if you had, I think you and I are about the same age, Bonnie. But when I was a kid, I would go to the grocery store and see magazines, like some news magazines, and then some real newspapers. And then there was also these things next to the newspapers that looked just like the newspapers, but it was like uh, President George. Uh, H. W. Bush meeting with aliens, you know.
1: Sure, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and like Hil- Hillary Clinton adopts that boy.
0: Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, and as a kid, that was extremely confusing, and because it looked just like the real newspaper, and uh, you know, I would I would ask my mom like, what What's going on here? You know, and and like how can you know how come we how come Dad reads this newspaper every day because there's some value there, but the one right next to it is is Clinton adopting Batboy, you know? Um, And I felt like a real similar thing was going on with the older generation because they're like, you know, uh, CNN is a quote-unquote a news station on the internet, and so is Breitbart. And so is like all the and you know even the crazier like farther conspiratorial stuff. It looks exactly the same to the older generation. It's it's news online, Um, and so there's just a lot of a lot of confusion. And there's a way it really is the like epistemological crisis because there there's literally like the tools to discern um, what's. Right and wrong are not there.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. And I I think also, um yeah. like so I my my parents are, are not super online. Um, but you know, sometimes my mom will get online. Um and there have been times where we're sitting, like looking at the same website, and I'm saying, like, this is not a high quality site, you should not trust this, and she's like, Well, what's wrong with it? And I'm like look at it, like, I look at it, and everything about this screams, this is not trustworthy, like, you should not be reading this is a serious thing. And she's like, but but tell me what's wrong. And I'm like, it's the whole thing. If you can't see it, I can't tell you. Um, And it's just very difficult, I think, to, like, it's like learning another culture. And it's very, very, di- like if, you, if someone from another country sat me down and was like, explain American culture to me, I would be like, I, I don't, it's the, it's, it's the whole thing. Like, I, I don't know, I can't like just sit down and explain to you piecemeal the whole culture. Um, and the internet is very much like that. It's hard to communicate it to someone who hasn't sort of picked it up on their own, but the process of picking it up is kind of risky. Um, especially I think now with like the internet developed to what it is as opposed to like the much smaller scale and often more tightly controlled um, way that we first experienced it um, and so yeah I don't I don't know how you teach that um, and I think like to what you said especially like the local news site is a very easy format to imitate and that's where a lot of these like they call themselves satire, but it's like basically intended to fool you. That's where the the format that a lot of these sites go for now. And so people think they're, they're reading like some small town newspaper from a town they haven't heard of. And then they're never going to see like the about page that says this is satire. They just think
0: it's real. Yeah. Wow. And I think something similar happens with YouTube where if a, if a, if you can produce something that looks really high quality which the tools to do that have been made to the average person now and and so that can be very confusing i mean i think we saw that a lot during the pandemic when you know a a chiropractor or whoever could make these like really high quality videos and hundreds of thousands of people are will believe their narrative because it looks so legit
1: yeah. Yeah. Just this morning, actually, by chance, I was watching a, a video from the 2008 presidential election. And back then it was like, oh, like, this is so wild. Like Obama and Ron Paul supporters, they're like these young kids and they're making these YouTube videos. And like, this is so exciting. Like they're doing democracy and it's all like low tech. It's like some guy with his camcorder. And now like it's not cute anymore. Um, it's not just some guy with his camcorder doing his little like homemade rap um, and it's just like at a whole different level that can very easily fool many many people
0: yeah yeah it, it and you speak in the book a lot about the fallout to all of this it, and not only like national fallout where we have things like January 6th but the relational fallout where families have been divided and relatives have become like kind of people we don't even recognize anymore.
1: Yeah, I wonder, did you see that um, that tweet that was going around this past week where some woman tweeted something to the effect of like, if you're not estranged from most of your family as a white person, I question your commitment to anti-racism. And it was like, I mean, <laughs> um, yeah, things are probably going to get difficult, but like, is that is that where we're trying to end up? Like, I don't <laughs> right. think we want to land on estrangement. Um and yeah, a, a lot of it, I mean, I think that sort of interfamilial strife is is like, really common and so much of it is is driven by, um, you know, the, the, the different information that we're consuming. Um, I mean, and, and to some extent that's not new, like this is why there's that old norm of like, you shouldn't talk about religion and politics, um, because I think we've never been super good at handling those kinds of disagreements. Um, but it is exacerbated now by the fact that, you know, maybe 50 years ago, the the thing that's going to spark your political fight is not two times a day, right? Like maybe the evening news and the morning paper, you've got like two times when maybe this is going to get out of hand, whereas now it's constantly on your phone. Like at literally any moment, you could just start bickering about something.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that that's also so different from... Like you said, you know our grandparents grew up, and really our parents grew up with. Uh, I can remember this time. The news was you either got the news in the newspaper, or the nightly news, which was like an hour long. Like the idea. I mean, I I think, correct me if I'm wrong. I think CNN was like the first cable news channel that was like 24 hour news.
1: Yeah. It was the 90s, and it was it was CNN, and didn't it, if, if I recall correctly, like, the two of the big, um, wasn't, like, Kosovo and, like, the, the Monica Lewinsky-Bill Clinton scandal, like, those were some of the the big uh, events that they were like, we gotta cover this all the time.
0: Yeah, well, and I think maybe, um, Desert Storm, too.
1: Yeah, Desert Storm. Because um, it used to be that, like, sort of the, like, at a certain hour... You just got
0: like the. There was nothing playing. Like the TV would oh, end for the yeah, night. Yeah, yeah, right.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> and the and before you and I were born, like they would play like the Pledge of Allegiance or something, and then it was like off. You know, you can tell one thing I noticed when cable new when I watch cable news is that um, boy, they are trying to fill some time. Like the the minutia that they get into, and the thing that they're they're trying to make a big deal out of a thing that's not really a big deal. You know. Um, and, and I think that that's where also the kind of the strong editorializing came into play because again, cause you had to fill time. And so, and then now you've got to make ratings too. So even the more bombastic personalities are the, the draw, you know?
1: Yeah. I think on cable, you see that effect a lot in, um, two things in particular. One is like the trend piece segments where it's like this is happening everywhere and it's like you know three kids have made a tiktok and the other one is um like the local crime story that gets blown up to national attention that it frankly doesn't need but it you know it's, it's sort of like its own version of a trend piece of like this problem is coming for you and like you need to be worked up about it
0: where did the strong doubt of media the 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 untrusting of media, like where did that come from?
1: Oh man, um, I mean, I don't know that there's a, a single a single thing. I think um, on the on the you know, there's sort of like some standard lines of critique that you get from different parts of like the political spectrum, right? So on the right, it's been like mainstream media doesn't include us um, for a long time now. I I don't really remember that um, claim ever not being there in my lifetime. And, of course, that's sort of where, um, like, Fox and talk radio get their success of of saying, like, we're filling that gap that you're not not represented um, in the mainstream. Um, And then from the left, it it tends to be like a lot more of, um, you know, they're just enthralled to corporate and government interests like the establishment. Um, so I think the exact nature of the distrust varies depending on your political beliefs. But um, I don't know, I, I guess there, there was sort of a, a golden age of, of people comparatively trusting the press in, in like the, the middle of the 20th century. Um, but I, I, I think, and I think this applies to a lot of stuff. Um, not just the media. But I think the middle of the 20th century was like an anomaly. It was not a historical norm, and we're not going to get back to it. And it's not something like that level of um, like a comparative lack of polarization, like the major parties were were fairly similar, like to the point that some commentators, you can look back in those days, were like, do we need them to be more polarized so we can have more options on policy? Um, That's just not it wasn't like that before it hasn't been like that since um and so when you have um more more diversity going on in your politics more which is a nice nicer spin than polarization but when you have more polarization and you have now of course like the fragmentation of media so we can each get our own um tailored to us package of information yes but also we can see the contrast between what we're consuming and what other people are consuming i think being able to see those differences by itself is a big source of of skepticism and distrust of like you know why are why are we not all receiving like the same truth um i think that it just creates
0: unease you know i think back to um the obama administration when Um, you know, birtherism was a big thing. And part of the people who were really into that, um, you know, one of the things that I would say was, you know, I'm not like, the reason I don't believe that President Obama was not born on foreign soil is not because I love President Obama so much. Um, And it's not, it's also not because um, it's not because I have a naive trust in the media. It's rather that I know more how media works, which is, if you're a journalist, even if you really do love President Obama, but you've you're got...
1: you're the person who blows that story open...
0: You That makes your
1: career... You do it. Yeah.
0: You that makes your career. Yeah. You are the new Bernstein. Like you you were the one. So you're gonna do that just you're gonna you're gonna put that under the table and bury it just because you like President Obama so much. And even if that works, well and it's through, not just one
1: person, just it's like a whole hundred yeah, you're
0: not gonna be the only one who's ever gonna yeah. find that. Yeah, that's right. Like it's not so. It's not because I. The reason I thought that was ridiculous, not because I liked Obama so much, not because I had a, a naive, you know, uh, belief in the media, but because of you know the almost like, uh, almost like capitalistic nature of journalism is like you're going to look out for your own career, and if you find the proof, you're going to break that story, and and even if it was again. You're also probably going to be, if you're that journalist, you're also going to be knowledgeable enough to know that if you don't break it, someone else is. So you might as well be the one, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, this is, this is, this is like my number one um, skepticism about a lot of conspiracy theories. Um, how many people are you alleging are keeping this quiet, um, despite typically... Uh, very strong personal benefit, like interest in in benefits that they could gain from not keeping it quiet. Like this is very frequently the case. Like and it's, it's why I find a lot of them so implausible. And um, you know, even a lot of like the, the more recent conspiracy theories around like the election so implausible. Um, we're talking about thousands and thousands of people, ordinary people, incompetent people who could stand to gain so much attention, potentially money, tons of good things for them if they, you know, revealed what happened and no one's doing that. Like people are just not, people are not that smart. People are not that self-disciplined. People are not that self-sacrificing when it comes to members of the media. Like people just don't work that way.
0: You know, so you devote, um, a good, good section of the book talking about conspiracy theories in general, and also specifically the election, the 2020 election. Um, you know, I heard once that the reason that conspiracy theories get started is because there's an event that has like outsized consequences. Um, I think I may have heard this on John Oliver actually. Um, but like, for instance, like nine eleven. Um, it's like people just find it hard to believe that like, you know, 20, 20 men fooled us all basically. Right. Like they were, they were able to orchestrate this thing that was like so huge and caused wars and stuff, you know? Um, and like,, uh, 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 the Kennedy assassination, like really, like just it all it took was one guy with a rifle, and it, you know, changed history. like there's outsized there's small, small cause that has this outsized consequence. um but I was wondering, like, does that hold does that paradigm hold up for the election? because it seems like I guess it I guess it would be because it would be a relatively it would be thousands of people, but compared to the American population, I guess that's a small number of people who would have had caused consequences for the entirety of, of the nation.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I would say that it's not necessarily just a big event, but it has to be a big event perhaps where people can't understand, people can't get into the mindset of, the other side and so like in the run-up to um, are you familiar with the idea of uh, theory of mind
0: uh maybe not i don't know I don't okay so
1: theory of mind is something that um humans should normally develop as they grow up um basically it's the idea of being able to understand that other people Um, have their own minds and make their own decisions and reason through things and they might have different information or values than you do and so they might reason to a different decision than you would. And so like little kids, very small kids, don't have this fully yet Um, and so, which is why like, um, you know, you, you might ask them like, what would you do in this situation? Um, if you were that person and they'll pick something that, like, they, that person would never pick because it makes sense to them as a three year old, right? But it doesn't make sense to the, the other person. They can't put themselves in the other person's position. And so I think for Americans, like, we're really struggling with, like, a political theory of mind where we, we cannot imagine being in the other side's position. And so um, one thing that I found really interesting in the run up to 2020 was um, so in my, uh, in my, I was working at the week then, um, and in our newsroom we had a little contest of everybody made their own election map, and whoever was most accurate was gonna win. Um, oh man, what was it? I I won, just so you know. Oh, um, it was, uh, shoot, it was like a signed photo of rick santorum or something something <laughs> weird like that um I, now i have to remember what it was and what i've done with. i don't it. know if i um, call you
0: the winner in that situation
1: <laughs> but so everybody we all made our maps um and mine was accurate to i think i had two states swapped but they had almost the same uh electoral college counts so i won um but the, the people on our team who were further right were doing like Trump landslides and the people on our team who were further left were doing Biden landslides. And like this was their sincere guess because they wanted to win this contest. Like they really thought this is what's gonna happen. Um, and I saw that like in, in a lot of places, like people were predicting landslides and the idea that it was gonna be a landslide was just like, it, there was never gonna be a landslide. Like people both love and hate both of these guys. Um, but there was a lot of sincere belief that it could not be anything but that like their guy had to win it was so obvious everybody hates the other guy like there's no way he could win Um, and i think when you go into it with that mindset and then your guy doesn't win um, well there has to be some explanation for it and they don't because the, the explanation of like he's not popular enough to win is like so repulsive and so unfathomable then there has to be some other explanation. Um, I, I mean, I wouldn't have been surprised if Trump won. I think he totally could have won. It was close. Um, I just don't think he did. Um, and because, like, part of the reason why it's, like, I don't feel the need to reach for a conspiracy theory to explain what happens, that both outcomes seemed really possible to me.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, I was kind of with you, too, because I, I in the run-up, I paid a lot of attention to the polls, <clears throat> Also, it, it complicates things because we have an electoral college. It's not just a popular vote as well. Um, but, um, yeah, I think and, – and so I think part of the pe- the why people, Trump supporters, found it so hard was because they would also – any poll leading up to the election that probably – and I think most polls were showing accurately that Biden was going to win, not by a lot, but but by some – um, I saw Trump supporters rejecting those too, um, because, but not because it would have been logical to say, well, the run up to the 2016 election also showed Hillary winning. So the, it, that would have been kind of a logical reason to distrust those, but mostly they were, um, I feel like people were distrusting them because of some sort of fraud, some sort of like shady thing going on. Like the liberal media is wanting to push this narrative kind of thing. And also there was a lot of like, what what's the word Bonnie for like the bias we have because of the people around us, like the,
1: oh, yeah, the yeah.
0: anecdotal information that we're gathering. And you know, well, if you live, in a Trump stronghold, or if you're, if you're attending like Trump boat parades, like it is going to feel like everybody's voting for Trump, you know? Uh, But there's a whole other nation out there. And we're also very, we're also very segregated by, you know, the, the divide between the urban areas and the rural areas, like that divide is huge. Um, So there is this bias of, the people i know no one who likes so-and-so therefore the whole nation must feel that way about it
1: yeah um yeah it's been i i moved last summer from uh the twin cities to pennsylvania to pittsburgh um and like our our neighborhood in the twin cities was like 95 percent democrats and like left like you know is it going to be liz warren or bernie sanders style democrats Um, And then here in Pittsburgh, it's, you know, it's like quite purple. It's the people who are Democrats are still majority, but like much more, you know, Biden-y, more more moderate. Um, And it's been super interesting, like to to, uh, most places are not like this in America now. It's been very interesting to um, observe a a more uh, mixed political environment than I had gotten used to.
0: So... Well, how do we get how do we get out of this, Bonnie? Um, like, how? And I both mean you know on the the macro level as a nation, but just in our individual experiences in the conversations we have with our f- family members. Um, how do we find a way out?
1: Well, um, I mean, I think that that maybe the the disappointing thing about my book and what I'm going to say right now. Um, for, for many people will be that I don't think there's any like large scale solution. Um, I think just to, to some degree, hopefully, and I, I don't have any sense of how long this will take, I think to some degree, maybe some things will settle down in regards to how we handle the internet, just as we become more used to this very, still honestly, very new and very world changing like communications technology. I mean, things got wild after the printing press came in, right? But that was like a couple hundred years. The Reformation happened. It was several hundred years of adjustment to get used to books. Um, it, and I so I think you know we're a little bit naive if we think we're gonna get used to the internet in two decades. Um, so I, I think and hope that, that sort of on the, the mass scale, some things will calm down on their own over some unknown period of time. But for now, um, Unfortunately, I, I really don't think that we can like legislate or content moderate ourselves out of this. Um, there's a lot of appetite for for that, perhaps. Um, but these these proposals tend to be very uh, ill thought out <laughs> um, and underdeveloped. And even if we implemented them, I don't think they really get at the the core issue or could sort of like. Um, you know, stop us from just finding new places on the internet to confuse ourselves. So, uh, yeah, as, as in some ways dissatisfying as it is, I, I really think the answer is just like, at an individual level, and in our families, and our churches, and our communities, we need to be looking at um, our own habits, um, and using those habits to support the development of like intellectual virtues so that we are like that I don't think our information environment is going to get better anytime soon but we can hopefully uh, change how we are engaging it um, and how we are handling the the information that we encounter so that we are um, not making things worse for one thing um, but also not making ourselves worse because that's, that's a really core part of it is not just the effect that it's having on our politics and our society, but the effect that it's having on us and how it's making us like, like impatient and twitchy and inattentive to one another, um, angry with one another, sort of like s- spoiling for a fight, um, eager to be estranged from our families as like proof of how good our politics are. Um, I think we, this is sort of, Central to it to understand that um, intellectual virtues are, are are virtues, and the way that we are behaving right now frequently is is unvirtuous. It's it's bad. It's evil. It's harmful to ourselves and to the people we love.
0: Well, let me let me put it on me. How can I be a better uh, discerner of truth and and be a part of not. Uh, not get caught up in you know disseminating false information or playing into you know narratives that aren't helpful.
1: Yeah. Um, well, so you and I are sort of in a in an unusual position, which is that me because of my my job and you because of um, you know your 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 podcast, your writing, um, also sort of engaging in like ideas publicly. Um, we ha- are in a, an unusual position of having a little bit more of a reason to be like out there in this information, um, like reading and absorbing things. Um, but for, for the vast majority of people, and probably to a degree for us, uh, less is a, a really good place to start like just logging off. <laughs> um, I know that's, that's such like a go-to explanation, but like use of our time and attention is I think really core here. Like what are we devoting ourselves to? Um, I have a list of questions in one of the final chapters of the book, and it's things like, can you wash the dishes without listening to a podcast anymore? Can you fold laundry without watching television? Like, are you able to sit down and read a book without picking up your phone every 10 minutes or at the end of every section header? Um, Noticing these, these behaviors and habits in ourselves, I think, is a really good place to start. You can't just decide to be intellectually virtuous any more than you can just you know decide to like something. Like you have to, you can't acquire a taste just by deciding it. You have to like keep practicing, doing, making a habit of trying that thing and building that taste.
0: I don't, what are we like 45 minutes in here, and I've, I've not mentioned like the church or Jesus, which like your <laughs> your book is unapologetically through that lens. And I just wonder what it seems like there, sh- there would be some help here in in Scripture and in following Jesus that would give us direction, that would give us some sort of a, a path through.
1: Yeah, I, there is. And one really, you know, I, I think it's being part of a good church community is not alone enough to sort of keep your brain from being unbroken. Um, but I don't I don't know that you're going to get there without it. I think it's it's very fundamental rhythm um of your life of of seeing people, seeing people who probably think differently than you, um being forced to a degree to engage with them, right? And and not forced in like a negative sense, but like sometimes if you were just friends with these folks you know maybe you would say like you know what we're too different like it's not worth dancing around these arguments like i just don't want to deal with this anymore but when you go to the church together well if you both keep coming to church you've gotta you've gotta engage with those people and you've got to figure out a way to to do it in like an an appropriate and hopefully christ-like way um so i think the 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 use of our time and the the maintenance of those those relationships is really key um and and worship is key as well i mean so much of um there there are a number of places where in scripture especially in um john's gospel and in um first second third john where truth and love are linked um like these are are very much related concepts um that you know we, we cannot, it's difficult for us to seek truth if we're not doing so in love. Um, and I think it's, it's difficult to recognize truth if we're not trying to live in love. Um, but also, you know, truth is, is understanding truth enables us to, to love rightly. Um, and so uh, worship is, is uh, formative for, for understanding what love and truth are, um, and for being able to recognize them elsewhere. Uh, and so, the importance of uh, of church and of, of faith for this is about um, training us to recognize truthful things and good things and loving things, um, you know, to, to be able to know it when you see it.
0: Yeah. You've got a great, a beautiful section at the end of the book about, uh, I think that this section may be titled An Epistemology of Love or something similar, and and I'll just tell people to go go get the book so that you can read that. But I think that <laughs> I think that one of the things that was so um, dismaying during all of that, and still and by that I mean the, the election and January six, was how quickly Christians were willing to give up a, a love give up love to, to kind of cast that aside cuz we're we're in the real world and you know all that love stuff is great for Sunday school but we're in the real world and sometimes you got to execute people you know um and <laughs> just it was so um it was so saddening to see christians just very quickly very easily throw aside love for um for political gains, for for ends that they thought were made it justified, you know?
1: Yeah, so without, like, opening a a much bigger can of worms of, like, how Christians should be engaging in politics and, like, appropriate relations of uh, Christian and the state, um, yeah, I I do think that that we have uh, this—we frequently, and and not even necessarily consciously, but by default think that— when it comes to politics or by extension, like engaging in political media, talking about it with one another, um, that is you can sort of set all that church stuff aside and like this is a different realm. And like, um, you know, even if you personally wouldn't do, um, you know, political violence or uh, talk about or treat people or like play hardball the way that your candidate does, like, you know, he can go out there and fight for you. And that's that's good and fine to support him doing that. Um, and once you have sort of that subconscious assumption, um, all sorts of things follow from that. And, uh, you know, reading um, something that maybe isn't true, but you want it to be true, um, you know, something that, that makes your opponents out to be perhaps worse than they are, and not really, you know, taking the time to, to dig into that and think, like, you know, maybe they're not actually this bad, and maybe I could um, be more loving to them. You've already set all that aside, and so it becomes much easier to just go along. Um, with with sort of everything that feeds those angry emotions and gives you um, the excitement and the thrill that you're you're looking for.
0: Mm, that's good. Well, I am really excited about the book because I think this is one of those books that like I think everyone should read, but it would be a really great one to give to your friends and family. Um, and and you your tone was so. Um, needed in the book because you know it deals with facts. You you're writing with your whole self, which is like a journalist, but also a believer. And so like there's a pastoral heart there, and so I think that it would help a lot of people kind of realize the kind of uh, you know the matrix we're living in um, that we don't we don't have to. We can choose to to break out.
1: I hope so, and I'm I'm glad that that sort of um... The impression you've gotten as one of the first people who have read it. Um, but I would also add that I'm, I'm, you know, writing as someone who is very much, like, dealing with all of this myself. Like, this is something that I have to think about all of the time, because, I mean, it's it's sort of, like, being in, in journalism and, and writing about politics, it's a little bit like, I don't know, if you're, like, a, a plumber or you're working in, like, the sewer lines, you got to think about, like, not, not getting sick from all of the, like, the refuse that you're dealing with day in and day out and like there can be a good reason for dealing with that refuse obviously certainly we need like sewer lines um but that doesn't make it not risky to to like handle this stuff
0: yeah yeah they're occupational hazards for sure i was just reading about how uh, someone uh, some journalist on twitter was talking about the ramifications of like watching the videos that are coming out from Uvalde, and and as you know journalists have to do that work and that is boy like so risky to your like to your mental health you know um so yeah journalists especially and we've all got to be careful about what we're taking in
1: yeah yeah i mean i think i i'd say very early on like it's always possible that my brain is like the broken one because you know uh, I, I chose to, to be in lots of brain-breaking situations, uh, for my work all the time.
0: Well, thanks for doing the work for us because it, it does, it matters. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, Bonnie, thanks for so much for being back on the show. It's been so good to talk to you.
1: Yeah. Thank you. You too.
0: Thanks for joining me for another episode of Seminary Dropout. Remember, you can find all the show notes for this show and all shows at shaneblackshear.com. Oh, and hey, have you ever thought about starting your very own podcast? I bet you have. And I think you should do it. In fact, I've created a course just for you to teach you everything that I've learned over the last couple of years producing Seminary Dropout. So if you're interested in podcasting and want to learn how, Go check out my course. You can go there by typing in podcastingforeveryone.org. And you can get a special discount by typing in the discount code SeminaryDropout, all one word. That'll give you 25% off. So go check it out. If you have any questions, let me know. Okay. Thanks to those that left ratings and reviews on iTunes this week. Remember, that keeps the show front and center. Also, remember, you can find me on Twitter at, at Beard on a Bike. That's at Beard on a Bike. Also, I'm on Facebook, facebook.com slash Shane Blackshear123. And remember that Seminary Dropout is listener supported. You can visit supportseminarydropout.com and press become a patron. Remember, this music you're listening to right now is by D.L. Rossi. You can find him online on iTunes and at dlrossi.com. All right. Thanks again for joining me for another episode of Seminary Dropout. Stay tuned for next week's episode. Love you. Take care.